Good morning. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's quite a sermon. Um, a five-word, it's actually just a five-word sermon. Forty more days, Nineveh overthrown. And it worked. What? Um, I tried a five-word sermon once myself. I did. Um, I was in grade 12, and it was drama class. And we had a project where the, the goal was to put on a character, become a character, create a character, and then during lunch hour, go through uh, the school as that character. So I thought to myself, I'm going to be like a crazy end times prophet. So I found weird, ratty clothes. I had a sign that was written in front, and I had, it was five words, repent, the end is nigh. I went through the school, and I was that guy. Um, I was like raving to people. I was like going right up to them, and I'm like, repent, the end is near. And I somehow convinced, I don't know how I did this, but next thing I know, I'm up at the top of the steps, standing on a milk crate, um, in front of like, the, this was during lunch hour, in front of the cafeteria with the microphone. Repent! The end is near! You need to repent! And I was going on and on. At one point, I went through and there was like, there, I actually started a following. There was a group of people that were just following me to see what would happen next. Um, I get to the one corner. There's that corner at school. There's that hallway. I get to that hallway, and I'm like, repent. And this one guy looks at me with a color, some colorful words. He takes me, pushes me up against the lockers. So I'm like now struggling, and I'm like, stay in character, stay in character. I'm like, dude, you got to repent. The end is near. And he's like, you t and he, it, was, it was escalating. I will not say what he said, but eventually I did. I will admit, I broke character. And I said, okay, listen, this is just a project. I'm for, like, it's for drama class. I'm pretending to be an end times prophet. And he's like, well, stop it. And seriously, it was, it was a bit of a close call. <clears throat> um, I usually don't get slammed up against lockers as a kid, but that time I did. Well, my school did not repent, um, as you could well imagine. Um, if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, um, you will know that we are exploring the book of Jonah. And Jonah preaches this five-word sermon to the city of Nineveh, and the entire city repents. How? Why? What's going on here? So there are four questions, there are four why questions um, that, that flow from each other that I would like to reflect on today. One, why did they need the message? Why were they given the message? Why did they respond to the message the way that they did? And why does this matter to you and me? So why did they need it? Why were they given the message? Why did they respond to the message the way they did? And why does it matter for you and I? That's where we're going to head today. So why did they need this message? Now, for this, we can do a quick recap. And so some of us already know the answer. We're in the third of four sermons exploring the book of Jonah. Now, Jonah's been sent to Nineveh. Nineveh, as we've learned, 
is a great city. A city founded by Noah's great-grandson, Nimrod, whose name literally means rebel. So Nineveh is founded by a rebel. It's the capital of the Assyrian Empire. It was a booming metropolis. They were capable. They were achieving great feats. They had architecture, developments. They were in control. They had it going on. They were that city. The government maintained control, and it was an empire built on brutality. These are the things that we know. Um, they, they worshipped pagan idols, and the raw, that's the Hebrew word for evil or wickedness, it's a good word, raw, um, was coming upon them. There was calamity. It also means, this is the interesting thing, the word also means calamity or trouble. So what we know is that God hears their raw, hears their evil, and desires to respond. But we also know that he hears their trouble, their calamity, and he desires to respond. They are in trouble. They are headed for disaster. They are on a collision course to receive the full force of the consequences of their actions. Our family had a cute little dog by the name of Bisbee. Um, I, we had it when I was a teenager. Oh, he was so cute. He was so lovely. Uh, he would sit watching out the window for people, animals moving by where he could then bark them away and believe he was the great king of the couch, um, as every small dog would, right? They have that attitude. Well, one year, while the family was camping in Kananaskis, a family member, I will not name his name, set off what is called a bear banger. Basically, it's a firework or it's a flare, just not a lot of light, a lot of sound. So they shoot it up into the air. It goes off. Bang! Bisbee just freaks out. Um, he's not done this in the past. Like He's not been afraid of loud noises up until this point. But for whatever reason, that just freaked him out, um, and he was off-leash, and he was just gone, and he just booked it, and ran and ran around, and then turned a corner, and then our family went searching for him, and it took 15 minutes before my two cousins, Jessica and Carmen, found him, 15 minutes later, cowering under a tree by, a, by like a path, and he was just stuck there. He was not going anywhere. And from that point on, he had doggy PTSD. He couldn't handle loud noises from that point on, thunder and all of it. But running and hiding made sense for him. It was his instincts that kicked in, and he went for it. Nineveh's instinct as a nation was violence, oppression, control, authority, and it was working for them for a while. It was allowing them to spread and to have dominion and to have strength. It was how they viewed their reality. That was their trajectory. Now, we, we've come across pictures like this, where there's the dog in the cone. It's humiliating, but it's necessary. And if left to their own devices, we know that they would lick their wounds raw. I came across this cone of shame as well. <laughs> Sometimes we find ourselves in tricky situations. 
in difficult situations where we need help. Um, if left to our own devices, where do we end up, right? And I'll be honest, I avoid thinking about this. I don't, I don't like to go there. Um, if left to my own devices, I'm kind of like my car. It just always sort of pulls left. I've gotten it aligned, I've gotten the wheels figured out, but if it's just always pulling a little to the left, and if I just let go, I'm going to end up, at best, hitting a guardrail. So it's constant adjustments, constant adjustments. Um, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, it's one of my favorite books, um, he walks us through an experiment, a thought experiment, where people from hell are given the opportunity to take a walk and see heaven and experience heaven. They're given a chance to come face to face with the core thing that's keeping them out of paradise. So in turn, each of these characters slowly but surely convinces themselves that they would rather get back on the bus, that that is what they would rather do. They talked themselves out of repentance. They convinced themselves that their bitterness is too important, so they keep it. They back themselves slowly into the bus. It's the way they think they want it. Heaven was too bright. Heaven was filled with those people. There was no eye for an eye. People might want heaven. We say that we might want heaven. But in the end of, at the end of the day, a lot of times, people choose themselves. They choose bitterness over joy. They're unwilling to self-sacrifice. They're not willing to live in humility and to put their trust in a higher power. That's, that's where things kind of tend to go. We say, sure, I'd, I'd love heaven as long as I'm in charge. Then, then I want it. I'd love heaven as long as I'm in charge. And so Nineveh is seriously off course. They have that trajectory in their minds. That is where they are headed. It's not God's design for humanity. Why did they need this message? We all know. They were in serious trouble. But it's one thing to need a message, right? And it's another to get the message. During World War I, um, there were these two British soldiers, uh, Lance Corporal Schofield and Lance Corporal Blake, and they received seemingly impossible orders. In a race against time, they must cross over into enemy territory to deliver a message that could potentially save 1,600 of their fellow comrades, including Blake's own brother. It was difficult. It was harrowing. They did everything they could to deliver that message. Tragically, Blake is killed along the way. But Schofield, he gets to the trenches, finds the Colonel McKenzie, who at first actually refuses to listen to him in full disbelief, and he insists that they are about to defeat the Germans. And Schofield pleads with him to read the letter. Sir, read the letter, which he finally does. And he orders his men to stand down. The message is given, and the troops pull back from what would have been a trap. It would have been a massacre. Nineveh needed the message, 
But why were they given the message? To this, we can turn to Jonah chapter 3. We'll start right up at the very beginning. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I gave you. Now, Jonah actually did what he's supposed to do, right? This is the reversal. We've been expecting, well, we're not even sure what to expect in this story, honestly, anymore, because everything is like a curveball, like everything is changing. So Jonah actually is now following what he's supposed to do. He's doing what he needs to do. He is going to Nineveh. Now, what's interesting, in that one line, it says that Nineveh was a very large city. Now, that is a common translation. That is a preferred translation by most people who translate the text. It literally, literally means a great city to God. The translators made a choice here because many of them see it as it was an old expression. It was an old way of saying it was God-sized. It was so big, it was like the size of God. It was a God-sized city. That's one prevailing thought. However, there is still genuine debate that it's possible that it, it is what it says it is, that it was a great city to God. Uh, Meg Gonette, um, she puts it this way. At first we know that Nineveh's size and its wickedness um, that has arisen to God, right? We know this in chapter 1. But in chapter 3, Jonah comes to the city, then it is revealed as being a great city to God. As yet, we don't know whether this only concerns its great evil and its imminent punishment, or if the phrase implies some other relationship to God. It's only in chapter 4, which ends with God's question, that the fullness of the implications of the city's relationship to God and even its size is spelled out. The myriads who don't know their right hand from their left hand and all their cattle. Essentially, this city, the myriads of people, matter to God. Yes, it was filled with wickedness, but the city matters to God. That city, that nation, those people, they mattered to God. The neighbor, that family, you, you matter to God. As I prepared this sermon today, I asked the Lord, Lord, what's the, what's the core? What's that one thing? Um, what's, what's on your heart, Lord, for me to share? And it, 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 I kind of could summarize it like this. There are five word messages for my people today. And if Nineveh was in trouble and they got out, he can too. She can too. So where else do we see God's care, which is the answer to why? God's care. It's in the message itself. Um, did they deserve to receive the message? No. 
No, why? they didn't deserve it. They were on a collision course of their own doing, of their own making. If justice was all and only what God was interested in, he could have not responded to the cries that rose up to him. Certainly that is what Jonah wanted. Jonah did everything he could to stop the warning from taking place. Because God's word of warning is always a word of grace. His word of warning is always a word of grace. And, and, and more than just that, that God gives them time. He didn't need to do that. They were given time. Perhaps it was with the warning and with the time that they saw the graciousness of God and it just clinched it. It clicked. It made sense for them. They had time to set things right. They had time to adjust. It wasn't too late for them. And that God gave them 40 days. That's not an accidental amount of time. And for those of us that have been in church for a while, we would, we would have heard the word 40 a lot by now, right? 40 days is a symbolic amount of time for total transformation and testing. And it's always after 40 days that something big would happen. So why did they get the message? Because God cared. He sent a messenger and he gave them time. He gave them time. So we know why they needed it. We know why they were given it. Why on earth did they accept it? Why did they respond the way that they did? These were not Israelites. These were not people saturated in the laws of God. These were not people who understood everything that was at work from the beginning of Moses, Jacob, Joseph, all of these characters. They didn't have that backstory. Well, what, what, do we know, what do we know first? What we know on a literary perspective. So if we're just thinking about the story itself, we know that the story is filled with the unexpected. So why did they respond the way they did? Maybe because it's just unexpected, right? Joseph's supposed to go this way, and he goes this way. He goes down when God is asking him to go up. And then we have those ignorant pagan sailors they don't know anything and yet somehow they know more about god they respond to the situation with more spiritual awareness than jonah himself they were supposed to be clueless and yet they are the wise ones and then we even have the fish if we want to call the character a fish god does speak to the fish it's actually one of the only times it's recorded that god speaks to an animal not just commands it but actually speaks to the fish, anyways, that's a side note. A little dig, dip into the, into the literature there. Um, even the fish, we could consider an unexpected character. Because actually eating, which actually eating Jonah doesn't kill him, it rescues him. So if Jonah can do the opposite, so can the sailors, so can the fish, then why not Nineveh? So we have that literary twist that's at work. Um, was it Jonah? Was it the messenger that, that caused them to respond the way they did? Now, biblical historians and scholars 
uh, anthropologists, archaeologists, they all bring to the table really interesting thoughts about this situation. He could have been received and as an official diplomat, where he was given three official days, which was actually a common thing, where an official would be given three days to go into a city. First day, they announce themselves. Second day, they do their business. On the third day, they leave. Could have been that. He was considered official, an official messenger from a god, and it was taken seriously because they believe in gods. Now, some have wondered if Jonah was received and believed because news of his being vomited onto land by a fish gave him special status and favor with the people of the area. One of the gods worshipped in Mesopotamian area, particularly among the Philistines, was a god named Dagon, a merman god. There we have him, merman, right there. All right, so it's possible that he was viewed as being sent by this god, a revered god of the land, and so he had favor among the community. That's possible. Or perhaps um, he was just in Fish City. This is an interesting thing. Um, oh, I should skip ahead. because um, So this, is, this was, I thought, was also quite interesting. Now, Nineveh wasn't a Hebrew word, right? Nineveh was an Akkadian or like an Assyrian-based name. And inside of that name is the word uh, Nina. And Nina, Anina was a river goddess symbolized by a fish. It's pretty hard to tell here. And one scholar asks this question. If the thesis of the link could be made between the name of the city and the fish is correct, then the story incorporates an ironic play on words that enhances the reader's enjoyment. Not just enjoyment, though. Depth of insight. Jonah tries to flee in the opposite direction to get as far away from fish city as possible to avoid performing his mission. But then the Lord intervenes and sees to it that he still winds up in a fish all the same. First, the marine creature, and then the metropolis. I thought that was interesting. So, was it fish city that he just happened to have that kind of credentials? Now, some have explored the timeline of events and suggest that this message that this message actually came with, at a, when there was a series of natural phenomenons that had been taking place, that there had been earthquakes that they could register, they can figure out that happened around that time. There are stories of earthquakes taking place. There's also stories of a great eclipse. Now, all leaders and all people at that time, they took seriously when the heavenly realms were sending a message. That these were important days, these were important signs, that something was up. And then, Jonah comes with a message. So it's quite possible that Jonah came at the right time when the Assyrian Empire was in trouble. There were famines, there were threats, there were other forces. There were strains on their economy. They were in trouble. And it was a message that they were ready to hear. 
Let's go back to the text briefly. So the text says it took three days to go through it. Three days to go through it. Now, I already gave you what, one little interesting snippet about what those three days might have been all about, right? Entering into this uh, fish city. But those three days also can mean a couple of other things. It could mean that the city was just large enough along with like the main city core, but then you would have around the city, you would have small homes and villages and people that would come. They wouldn't quite have access into the city, but they might be in the surrounding area. That was common. And so the city might have taken three days to get through all of that. And so it could have just been very large. The other thing it could have been, which I kind of hinted at as well, is that it was the length of time for someone important to come into the city and they would be the emissary. They would be sharing that information. So on day one, they give the announcement. Day two, decrees. Day three, they leave. Whatever the reason is, we're not quite sure. All we know is that this was a great city. It was a big city. It was an important city. An important city. And all of this is causing us, the, read, the writer is choosing to say these words, slowing us down so that we look closely and that we respect every word in this book. Jonah enters the city and on his first day he makes his announcement. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And here's the twist that no one's expecting. Everything is pointing to three days, right? Three-day trip, three days in a fish, three days for official visit, three days. And then on day one, it begins to happen. Jonah certainly would not have ex expected this. He would not have anticipated the kind of response that the people made. They begin to clamor and spread the information, and they believed God. They didn't just believe God. They believed and responded with action. They didn't just say, yeah, 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 I'm sorry. They said, okay, fast, sackcloth, ashes, fasting, more fasting, more fasting from water. Don't let your animals eat or drink. And let's put sackcloth on the animals. Like, what is happening here? And then the word gets to the king, and he's responding as well. The response is dramatic. It's huge. It is way over the top. It is profound. Why, why did they respond? At the end of the day, we have all of these possible history elements that are at work, but simply put, at the end of the day, it was a miracle. It was what we could say, the great, one of the greatest Old Testament miracles ever. A whole city repenting. It was a miracle. That's what it was. It is the enduring miracle that when God speaks, things happen. When God's word is proclaimed, heaven opens, the Holy Spirit moves, Hearts are convicted. Isaiah 55, 11. And as a, as a preacher, as a pastor, I, I, I hang on to this. So is my word, God's word, that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, 
but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. And this brings us to our last question. Why, why does this matter to us today? The, the root word for overthrow is hapak. And it can mean two things. Um, it is often used in the, in the main way as over, like what, what it is written, overthrow, destroy, destruction. And it's overwhelmingly connected to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you were to go through the Old Testament, you would see this word attached to God overthrew, will overthrow you like in Sodom and Gomorrah, back and forth, happening over and over again. We see that. However, this verb also is commonly used in the general sense to mean turned over, to mean transformed, to mean changed. Deuteronomy 23, 6. The Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but changed the curse into a blessing for you. You changed my, uh, my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be changed. It's all, it's the same word, into another man. First Samuel 10. So yeah, 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown like Sodom. Yes. 40 days and Nineveh will be transformed. Yes. The writer has chosen a word that puts us in tension. Jonah went preaching destruction and destruction became transformation. Did you you catch that? Do you see that everything that we thought this story was supposed to be for is turning out to be different? And why this matters for you and I is that God's grace is in these kinds of announcements. That destruction can become transformation for us too. For some of you, God is convicting you of your sin and your rebellion. And you you hear the warning and you, you know it's true. You know you're headed on a collision course of collapse. You feel the weight of your guilt but by the sheer fact that you're feeling any of this is grace. That is God's grace giving you time, giving you a chance to sense the gravity of your decisions and make a change, to make a choice. It's an invitation to let the word of warning in your life become a word that leads to transformation. God sent Jonah to that great city, to that great city to God. God spoke a word to the city. And when God speaks, it happens. Things happen. And then God saves them. And for us today, God sent Jesus to you. And, and you are great to God. God spoke through Jesus, and he still speaks through the Holy Spirit today. God still saves. But we know that God does not force your hand. Even, even Jonah was given the second chance, and he 
could have ran the opposite way again and God could have grabbed him by an elephant. It could have happened, but it didn't. Jonah changed his mind, right? He chose to go in the direction. You can choose to let the word of warning lead you out of destruction or into destruction. C.S. Lewis, in The Great Divorce, he says this, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there would be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. Something for us to consider. So I, I'm going to conclude with this. I asked God to just kind of help me write a series of five-word messages. And by faith, I'm believing that these five-word messages um, are meant to be heard by you. They might not be a fit. They might be. But what I would ask um, is that as the worship team comes up, that, that you would stand and that you would put in a posture of readiness, Lord, I'm ready to hear your word. I'm ready to hear your message. Um, would you stand as we get ready to close in worship? And then I'm just going to read out to you these ten five-word messages. And I'm praying that some of these will resonate to you. Number one, you are mine, fear not. This addiction will destroy everything. I forgive you. Forgive her. Tell him the truth today. Stop hitting her or else. Swallow your pride. Say sorry. In faith, pray for healing. Surrender now. Stop fighting me. Will you go for me? I love you. Follow me. As we sing and close, I am praying and I pray that the Lord would strike a chord in your heart that he has a, a word for you to say yes to and that you would know that like Nineveh there was grace given and that the warning is the grace and that, there, and that the time is now don't wait three days choose day one to say yes to what God is stirring in your heart today let's, let's sing together and then I'll close with a benediction.